The issues that matter most, right here. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. Once the head of the House Intelligence Committee warned of an impending threat, alarm bells were sounding throughout Washington. And once we found out just what the threat was, they rang even louder. It's the Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. Yeah, to me, that's one of the very biggest stories of the day, one that demands prayer. We'll talk a lot more about it coming up a little later in the broadcast. But if you're wondering what I am referring to, yesterday afternoon, Representative Mike Turner, who chairs the House Intelligence Committee, he announced that he's going to ask the White House to declassify documents that show that Russia has the capability to knock out our satellites uh, through the use of nuclear weapons. And um, when this news broke, I mean, it really gave me pause. I, uh, Dr. Peter Pry, who's been a great friend of the show, and may the Lord rest his soul, God took him home recently, talked about what would happen to this country if there was ever an EMP blast. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen necessarily over the country, but if they take out communications in space, if they take out, they blind our military, if they affect our power grid, um, we're going to be a crippled nation. Uh, Turner said that he already shared the information with members of Congress, but he wants to declassify it so that he can discuss it openly on the floor of Congress and along with allies, not just not just here in the states. One source uh, told Fox News that you know while the threat is grave, it's not necessarily immediate. One Russian expert has has told them that Turner has known about the threat for years, and this is just a tactic to get the House to pass funding for Ukraine. I don't believe that personally. Um, Turner is a uh, is not a bomb thrower. He, he really isn't. And for him to come out with the urgency that he did, it should give us all pulse. I mean, China has the ability to blind satellites with, with lasers. Um, if, of course, if Russia decided to break a, a treaty, which they've done before in the past, use nuclear weapons in space, I mean, that's a major, major game changer. As I said, we'll talk more about this a little bit later in the broadcast, but here's an overview about these Russian anti-satellite nukes. This comes from ABC News. Check it out. Startling new intelligence on a potential threat from space. The U.S. believes Russia is working on plans to position a nuclear weapon in space, a blatant violation of multiple international agreements. The intended target, not Earth, but the critical satellite circling around it, vital for communications and military operations. Moscow's military ambitions coming to light after the Republican head of the House Intelligence Committee, Mike Turner, sent shockwaves through Washington by cryptically urging the Biden administration to declassify intelligence about what he described only as a serious national security threat. The White House caught off guard. You definitely are not going to find an unwillingness to do that when it's in our national security interest to do so. At the same time, we, of course, have to continue to prioritize and focus very much on the issue of sources and methods. We'll do that. As I said, I'm not going to dive into it now. I'm going to put it on your radar a little bit later today in the broadcast. We'll have some experts here to analyze what it means for our national security and really for peace and uh, for the future. Uh, this is serious Serious stuff. And we have major competitors. You know, you talk about China, you talk about Russia, even North Korea, a lot of other countries uh, that would like to see the U.S. Uh, crippled. We're the mightiest military in the world right now. I want to remain that way. Um, who was it? Was it, um, I guess it was a Roman said, if you want peace, 
It's an old adage. If you want peace, prepare for war. You know, we need, I know we're giving a lot of our mil, our weaponry away. Um, we, we need to make sure that our arsenals are full, that we have the latest technology and, and that it's funded. I know, you know, peace through strength is another very common uh, adage that you often hear. So, um, but I always undergird that with my prayer, you know, today at mass, uh, when, right at the trans, right, right at the consecration. I prayed for the world. I offered my my mass up. Now, I'm not saying that for any personal. Oh, he's so great. No, I'm, not, I'm saying that because that's how urgent I feel the situation on the planet is. I, I often refer to the early decades of the 19th century and the 20th century and what unfolded afterwards. Uh, I prayed to God we never see anything like that. And uh, I, you know, just gives me pause. I'm sorry when I see these events unfolding the way they are. The Middle East is a mess. Like like Israel, for example, they just launched a rocket into another country. They launched it into Lebanon. That's after Hezbollah. That's a terrorist group. They hit uh, northern Israel with rockets, which killed a soldier, wounded seven others. So the BBC was reporting that seven civilians were killed by the Israeli strikes, and that report has not been confirmed. But Israel says it hit military compounds. They hit a con- in an operational control room. They hit a terror infrastructure. Uh, Hezbollah fighters, of course, have exchanged fire with Israeli forces almost every day along the border since the start of the war between Israel and Hamas. And uh, the real danger here, all of this threatens a much wider regional war. And if that erupts into a more, uh, into an expanded war, guess who's going to be funding it? Guess who's going to be involved in it, right? Guess who's going to be in that? We're looking at billions of dollars already. You saw the stuff that passed just the other day. I mean, I just, I, I said to my wife, I said, who pays for all this, right? Where does this money come from? Well, it's from you and me. And uh, I know there's a lot of nations who want to undermine the U.S. dollar. I pray we don't see that because if it does, boy, things in the United States would be radically, radically different. And again, we got people who hate our country, right? I mean, I, I don't get this either. Two guys walked into the rotunda of the National Archives yesterday. I don't know if you heard about this. They had a powder with them, right? Some sort of pink or red powder. And they dumped it on cases that contain the Constitution. We are the greatest nation in the history of the world. Our form of government and what we've done to advance civilization, our generosity. I believe there's a divine anointing on this country. And if you don't like this country and you don't like our Constitution, then leave. That's what I say to you. Go. I'd like to see how much you like North Korea. Or how much you'd like to be surveilled constantly and have a social credit score in China. I'd like to see you in Venezuela. Go ahead. Go. If you don't like the United States of America, you don't like what our founding fathers framed, if you don't like the freedoms that we have, then go. You walk into the National Archives Rotunda and you dump red power all over the, the, the contents of the original Constitution. I don't know the identities of this guy. I just heard about the story briefly, but it irritated me. Um, they do appear to be connected to a group called Declare Emergency, which wants President Biden to declare a climate emergency, which would then give him executive powers to do what he wants with the climate. Um, you know, you see these climate activists throwing soup on the Mona Lisa and, you know, they're dumping all sorts of dye into the Trevi Fountain. I mean, they're doing crazy stuff, try to get their attention at a point. Uh, when this went down, by the way, the rotunda had to be evacuated. The whole archive building closed yesterday, and it remained closed today for cleaning. But uh, I just think it's so wrong. Uh, the, speaking of, of the weather, 
Um, we're going to get into it coming up in a few minutes here. This is an interesting story. I won't get into it now, but I'll unpack it for you. Scientists right now are saying that the Atlantic, right, that the, the current appears to be on the verge of, of collapse. And they're exploring right now how perhaps uh, the Atlantic Ocean could be at a, a tipping point or on a precipice of a catastrophic change. And this would change the world as we know it. It would change temperatures. It would change nations. Um, they call this the ocean's conveyor belt. And I'll fill you in on that, speaking of, of climate. You see these people get passionate over things. They'd be good, good stewards of the environment. I'm not opposed to that. I'm all about maintaining and, and making sure we're good stewards of the planet that God gave us. But uh, I think we have to approach this with civility. Uh, there's a group called the White Coat uh, waste project uh, that they've exposed the Biden administration has sent millions of dollars to labs in the U.S. that are trying to soup up avian flu viruses. They want to reinfect fowl. They want to infect them with, with viruses, try to get more virulent, if you will, versions that can hit mammals. But here's the thing. They're, they're saying that these labs are connected with the Chinese Academy of Science, which owns the Wuhan Virology Lab, which produced the original COVID-19 virus. And they have documents showing that money was sent to the Chinese in the U.S. labs and also to labs in the U.K. And Senator Joni Ernst of uh, Iowa is demanding answers, wants to know what the heck is going on and why are we conducting these types of experiments, right? And, uh, you know, what's really weird, we're living in a time right out of Scripture where there are wars and rumors of wars, Right. There are strange events in nature. We're talking about the tipping point in the Atlantic. How about strange new diseases and viruses? Okay, you've had COVID and you've had AIDS and you had all these other things in recent decades. I just saw a story of an ancient disease that has resurrected in our own country now. You've heard it all when communicable diseases like the bubonic plague are being reported in our own nation. Oregon is one of those countries. Yeah, bubonic plague. That's a disease, as you know, it was rampant in the Middle Ages. It's still around, but fortunately it can be successfully treated. But the patient in Oregon apparently got it from his or her cat that had fleas. That's how it was spread during uh, the bubonic plague. I mean, it was, it was uh, you know, these the, the rats and the mice of the time had carried these infected fleas. People got bit and it spread. And if you're wondering, if you have bubonic plague, symptoms are fever, headache, weakness, and painful swollen lymph nodes. I doubt you have it, but those are the symptoms. Some hypochondriac there's right now said, oh my gosh, I do. My, my, my glands are swollen. I have a headache, I have weakness. See a doctor if you're not well. All right, but I just found that strange when you talk about uh, having a bubonic plague in the United States of America today in the 21st century. Um, one final story, if you are a gun owner, I'll share this with you, then we'll change gears. Uh, the major credit card companies, they decided to move ahead with assigning new merchant codes to gun stores. This has taken place in California, and CBS News was reporting that gun control activists, they hope the code could be used as a tool to help identify you know, people who purchase and consequently you know, uh, use these guns. They, they're hoping to stop gun crime and mass shootings and proponents say, look, if you put a code on these firearms, it's going to allow banks and credit card unions to allow law, law, law enforcement um, to potentially suspicious, suspicious, you know, purchases. And that's a good thing. I understand the concern that people have, 
But what does it do about privacy, right? Certain lawmakers are pushing to make the code applicable across the country. Second Amendment advocates are pushing against it. They say, look, it violates your rights to purchase a gun under the Second Amendment. You have a right to bear arms. Do you have to go into some sort of database and be tracked? Uh, some states have even banned the use of the code. So we'll see what happens. That's California. If you're out in that state, just putting it on your radar. Hey, let's talk about that weird um, ocean conveyor belt. Let's talk about the Atlantic right now being on the verge of collapse. We'll talk about the weather here for a quick moment. And you can join me too if you want to. 888 you know, and I always want to be on the right side of this stuff. I mean, is this the cycle of nature? Is mankind contributing to this? Can we can we do more? Um, the latest bit of news is that scientists are afraid of something called the Atlantic Meridional. Uh, I hope I get it right. Meridional. I hope I'm saying that right. Overturning circulations. It, it stands for AMOC, and I don't know if I'm getting meridional. Meridional. M-E-R-I-D-I-O-N-A-L. There it is, Meridional. So um, anyway, it's the current that runs from south to north and back south again. And it brings, you know, stabilizing weather to the northern hemisphere, especially our northeast in Europe. But the claim is that these melting icebergs are going to dilute seawater and decrease the amount of salt. That's going to cause the current to slow down and eventually stay in the southern hemisphere. Um, let me share a little bit with you from Global News about the potential threat of the Atlantic collapsing. Check it out. The major currents in the Atlantic Ocean move billions of tons of warm water north and cold water south, a powerful yet delicate exchange that balances the Earth's climate. But it could all collapse within years, according to a new study. Unlike gradual global warming, slowing or stopping the Atlantic's circulating currents could make parts of the Northern Hemisphere dramatically colder. It's happened before, says the study's author. The overturning circulation can be in an on state, which is what we are in now, and an off state, which was what happened in the in glacial times 12,000 years ago. You recall what you said about how polar melting might disrupt the North Atlantic current. Scientists say it wouldn't be like the Hollywood film where cities froze overnight, but changes could happen within a very few years. If this is going to happen, this is a complete change of climate. The warm waters in and around the Gulf of Mexico stream north and east toward Europe, a colossal heat pump. It's one reason Northern Europe is warmer than Northern Canada. The Gulf Stream system though, is part of the global conveyor belt that cycles warm and cold water currents around the planet among the most powerful forces on earth. But the overturning circulation in the Atlantic is being disrupted by global warming. So the consequences of this, and we'll talk to H. Sterling Burnett about this, uh, they're saying they're not just significant, they're seismic. This is what they're reporting. I want to get his take. He's pretty balanced. They said Europe could experience a cooling of more than 5 degrees Fahrenheit per decade with parts of Norway facing a drop of 35, 36 degrees. So it could be pretty seismic if that indeed is the case. I'm joined right now by the director of the Author B. Robinson Center on Climate and Environmental Policy at the Heartland Institute, the managing editor of Environment and Climate News. It's good to have with me, as I said, uh, Dr. Uh, H. Sterling Burnett. Uh, good to have you with us today, Sterling. Good afternoon. Good to be on again, Drew. Uh, you know, doctor, uh, you know, it sounds pretty apocalyptic, 
You know, it does. Um, it does. Am I missing something? Uh, fill me in on on, on what's happening. Well, this whole this whole idea of of you know taking this green action was to cool the earth down, and now we're talking about temperatures plummeting. So give me your take. Yeah, well, let's talk about uh, some of the things that they don't talk about in the study. Um, it, it would be true that if the AMOC shut down, um, temperatures would plummet within decades, and we'd have, if not a mini ice age, maybe a return of the next ice age, which, wow. by the way, we're overdue for anyway. Wow. You can't say whether the slowdown right now is a temporary thing, a long-term thing, or uh, and, and whether it's natural or human cause. And here's, here's the problem. If you look at the study, it's interesting. No one talks about this in the study. Uh, what is their reference period? Year one. Okay. How long are they talking about this happening over? When, when will the drop occur? When will the AMOC shut down? 1,758 years from now. Wow. Okay. Wow. So in, in the year 3,798, the AMOC could shut down. That's what we're worrying about now. Yeah. We have people dying in countries all around the world now, but we're talking about generations not just yet to be born, yet to be imagined yeah. to be born that they're talking about. America is a, a glimmer in the eye of 1,700. And, you know, yeah, right. so this is it, it, the headlines all blared. Oh, it's shutting down. 1,700 years from now, that's what we've got to worry about? Is their science um, accurate, though? Do you think that they're, what they're seeing is accurate? Well, no. Look, Greenland, Greenland has experienced some melt. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's not uh, as dramatic as they make it out to be, especially in context of the uh, entire continent. But as they point out, and this is, this is sort of critical, as they point out, this has happened multiple times before. And uh, yeah. long, thousands of years before there was a single internal combustion engine or coal-fired power plant or anything else, human civilization was just forming the last time this happened. That's what happened at the end of the last ice age. Wow. So we've had higher seas in the last 11,000 years than we have now. They have declined and they have increased. We've had more melting and less uh, ice on Greenland than we've had now. I mean, yep. you know, one of the things they're finding all the time is bodies are being uncovered. Structures are being uncovered. Yep. What they call highways, uh, you know, transit points where people traveled 6,000 years ago. Masses of people traveled along certain routes that are just now being uncovered by ice. Yep. And that's the point. These things come in cycles. Yep. I think we've got, if we've got 1,700 years, We've got a little time to plan for what might happen, but it's really important to realize that this is one study and multiple other studies produced just in the last three years have said the Atlantic Ocean current is speeding up. Wow. So well, let me you do this. headlines in the same news organizations yeah. that within months of each other were saying the Atlantic current is speeding up, the Atlantic yeah. current is slowing down, the Atlantic current is speeding up. The science is not settled on any of this. I love it. My guest today, uh, Dr. Sterling Burnett, if you want to join us, 888-914-9149. Doc, let's take a couple calls for you. Uh, Greg is in Bright, Indiana, and he's got a comment for you. Greg, go right ahead. You're on the air. I just wanted to say that when I was a much younger man, I, uh, I remember a Time magazine cover, I believe, that the Ice Age was coming back and we were all going to freeze to death. And then that goes to changes from that to climate change to 
And so I, I feel like they, whatever they want to predict, they'll try to predict and really can't predict anything. Yeah, so may. thanks a lot for your show. Thank you, Greg. I appreciate it. Doctor, I'll let you respond. Yeah, well, I was a young man when that when that time cover came out. They were the, the same scientists now who are warning who are warning of runaway global warming were then warning of the coming ice age. And you know, the one thing that they shared in common, yeah. they said they knew what the science was saying, and that government, bigger, bigger government, and more funding for them was the answer. <laughs> oh my gosh. Wild. Hey, you, you said something interesting a few moments ago. I want to get back to it. I'm not sure whether you're familiar with this story. I hope you are. I came across a piece. Uh, it described a stone wall, and it was found at the bottom of the ocean. I think it was off of, I forget what coast it was. Um, our archaeologists found it, and they place it to be about, I think, 11,000 years old, 11,000 years ago, and it was used supposedly to pen you know, a method to hunt, to get to, to corral reindeer so they can hunt them yeah. more easily. But I'm thinking about this. This is an area that is 70 feet below water. It's in the northern part. Do you know what country I'm talking about? I can't remember off the top of my head where that I was. Think it was. I think it was uh, Norway or Lapland. Or yeah, something Nor like no, I think that. it was Norway. It was Norway. Saying, but I'm thinking, think of all the ice and, and all the depths of those water. 11,000 years ago, the planet was a very different place, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. No, it was. You know, the Ice Age had ended. It, oh, you know, it took between 18,000 and 12,000 years ago is when the Ice Age started to recede. Um, and so ice withdrew, land was uncovered. And since that time, since that time, because ice has continued melting, what, what happens, what, what no one talks about is in interglacial periods, which we're in one now, the Holocene, in interglacial periods, Ice continues to melt, and it melts as long and until the next ice age comes and starts taking the water out of the oceans and storing it in ice. Yeah. So since the last ice age ended about 11,000 years ago, uh, seas have risen 400 feet, not 12 feet, not 12 inches in a century, 400 feet. So there's a lot of land that was uncovered. Uh, that, that used to be ice covered, that was uncovered, yeah. and now has been recovered as the ice continued melting. And, yeah. and, and not just that. I mean, you know, we've had earthquakes, right? Yeah. We've had uh, mountains have risen from the, the, the oceans. Islands both shrink and grow yeah. depending upon the island chain. So the earth looks a lot different than it did then. Even more different than it did even farther in the ancient past. Yeah, when I saw the age of this thing, 11,000 years old, yep. I thought about how primitive, primitive we are. Primitive. I, what do you know about the Younger Dryas? Are you familiar with that, that, that climatic event that supposedly you know, had this sudden and temporary reversal of these glacial conditions? You know, we had this marked cooling in the Northern Hemisphere. What do we know yeah, about yeah, the Younger yeah. Dryas? Well, I mean, you know, ice sheets expanded. And and, uh, and and ocean levels fell, temperatures got cooler, crops failed, people died, diseases came. You know, it, it, yeah. look, this is just a, this is the history of Earth. Yes, it is. As long as humans have been around, during warmer periods we thrive. Yeah. During cooler periods we don't thrive. Cooling is a much bigger threat than modest warming. Wow. You can adapt to modest warming. Yeah. When it gets colder, crops fail, uh, uh, rains in some places stop, yeah. in other places become much heavier. Yeah. 
and and diseases become rampant. Yes, they do. Because you know, you think about when the flu season is, when the cold season is. It ain't the middle of summer typically. It's the winter because that's when bacteria thrive better. Let's do so, this, Doctor. I only have a moment or two left. I don't mean to step on you. Let's get Joseph in. He's in Arlington Heights, Illinois. He's got a comment for you about the weather, too, in the Gulf Stream. Joseph, hi. You're on the air with Dr. Burnett. Good afternoon. Good, uh, good afternoon. Thanks for taking my call. There's the astronomical phenomenon of precession where the Earth's axis actually wobbles and it mm -hmm. takes 26,000 years to complete its cycle. Yeah. Has anyone tied together the fact that the duration of ice ages, warmer and colder periods, seem to match up somewhat oh. with that time frame of 26,000 years? Well, that's fascinating. Well, I'm not sure they match up that well. Um, I, I, I'll, I'll be honest, I haven't studied it, but I do know this. Yeah. At least the last four cycles of ice ages have lasted 100,000 years or more, 100, 170,000 years. So you have ice covering most much of the northern hemisphere wow. for a period of 170,000 years, 150,000 years. So that doesn't match up with the uh, the tilt being 26,000. Yeah. What what about the poles? The the uh, you know, we're seeing that the magnetic poles often flip or shift. Does that have anything to do with the weather as well? Cuz I think we're didn't well, it just flip these, or we're pretty near to flipping affect, again. All these all these things affect the weather. That's why the climate models are so inadequate. Uh, they plug in a, a very few factors. What we know about uh, how the Earth, uh, you know, the the the, the Earth's radiance, uh, how they believe their assumption about how they believe greenhouse gases affect it, and then they basically control for all of the factors that they don't understand. So we don't understand how the wobble affects things very well. We don't understand how volcanoes affect things very well. We don't understand how clouds or solar activity, or cosmic rays. Yep. All these things we don't understand. They just put in a black box and they say, oh, that's how constant. Yeah. Well, and then they say, now we know what the Earth looks like, and it's all driven by, by CO2. Of course, wow. well, if, uh, if you've got a problem and you've only got a hammer, well, everything looks like a nail. <laughs> I'm sorry, CO2 yeah. ain't the nail. Yeah, gotcha. Hey, if people want more information, heartland.org, is that the best place to go if they want to learn more about what we're talking about and more? No, sure. Heartland.org or climaterealism.com. Go check them out. Climaterealism.com. All right, I'll check that one yeah, out. Yeah, we, we respond to news stories daily at Climate, Climate Realism. I, I got to check that out. Hey, Doctor, thank you. I look forward to the next time we can talk. Good speaking with you. Thanks for having Appreciate me. Appreciate it. That's uh, H. Sterling Burnett. He is director of the uh, Arthur B. Robinson Center on Climate and Environmental Policy at, Her at uh, the Heartland Institute. So check them out there as well, heartland.org. It is bottom of the hour. And you take a short uh, pause. Let me ask you a personal question, and maybe we can address this on the other side. Are you struggling with medical debt? If you are, don't go away. I'll be right back. All the news and issues of the day. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. Unpaid medical bills are still a problem, and many residents avoid getting care as a result. I always talk about the fact that medical debt is a leading cause of bankruptcy in the United States. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. Thanks for being with me. Medical debt is tough. Boy, it can add up, can it? And you have an accident or tragedy or just course of life. Uh, the topic of health insurance, that is a perennial 
political hot button. Even after Obamacare was passed, it still didn't, well, it hasn't done much to help solve how people pay for their medical care. And the Census Bureau says that 92% of American adults have insurance coverage. I was surprised I saw that number. That's a lot. Nine out of 10 Americans have insurance coverage. Good. However, Forbes says that the uh, at the same time, about 41% have unpaid medical or dental bills. And a quarter of Americans say they either won't fill a prescription or they'll cut the pill in half or they'll skip the dosage because they just can't afford it. And that is tragic. That really is. The government also said that the total national health care expenditure has reached $4.5 trillion in 2022, 4% higher than the year before, $8 billion higher than we paid for health care in 2019. So it's on the rise. Let me share a little bit more. This comes from CNBC News on the current challenges and crises that face you and me with medical debt. Widespread medical debt is a uniquely American problem. The United States has by far the greatest burden of health care bills on individuals. 7.4% of U.S. residents face catastrophic health care bills each year. That's more than double the next closest country. 100 million people in this country currently have some kind of health care debt. That's about 40% of adults. U.S. medical debt totaled at least $195 billion in 2019. Having insurance doesn't always insulate people in the U.S. from debt. Over 90% of the U.S. population has some kind of health insurance, but medical debt is still a persistent issue. Basically, our healthcare system is creating debt on an industrial scale. The history of medical debt is basically a history of the changing answer to the following question. When the patient can't pay the bill, who foots it? You've got two things that have been going on. One, high prices of medical care. And number two, patients that have to shoulder more of the burden of paying those bills that 20 or 25 years ago might have been covered mostly or entirely by their health insurance plan. The rise of the insurance industry may have been a catalyst for price inflation. 1965, that's when the bomb, the inflation bomb was lit. That's when it really went off because that just kickstarted the third-party payer system. So how did the medical debt crisis begin in the U.S.? And how can we fix it? So a lot of people saddled with, uh, with medical debt, around $100 million, according to a study that was done by the Kaiser Foundation. You know, even if you have health insurance, you probably have one of those high deductible plans where you got to pay something like, I don't know, $8,000, $10,000 before the insurance kicks in. That's a lot of money for 60% of Americans who live paycheck to paycheck. So what do you do? Well, I'm joined right now by Katie Talento. She's executive director of the Alliance of Healthcare Sharing Ministries, and you can find them online at ahcsm.org. She's here to give us some perspective. Katie, good afternoon. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. These numbers are stunning. They really are staggering. I, I often say health is a blessing, you know, and I pray for good health all the time because it doesn't take a whole lot to find yourself mired and very deeply over your head in, in medical debt. Uh, this is not surprising to you. What kind of stories are you hearing about? And, you know, what, you know, what are people facing when it comes to medical debt? Well, you know, they're facing price gouging by hospitals, um, and that, that's probably the most severe problem we have. Um, there's also price gouging not only by hospitals but by drug companies, but really the drug companies are part of a larger system of middlemen, and it's the middlemen in the drug supply chain that are actually worse. Um, they're the ones primarily driving up drug prices even more. Not that the pharma companies are <laughs> any angels, but I would say that that the hospitals are probably the biggest villains and the biggest drivers of um, the price increases that we've seen. You know, 
when you when you don't have to show anybody your prices and a third party pays those prices and the end user never sees them until well after the fact if ever yep. um you know then you it's this air of secrecy and when no one knows that you're price gouging the public then you continue doing it and it's it's serving everyone in the healthcare industry very very well so how do you see uh, greater transparency how do we how do we get to the point that we have transparency in healthcare pricing yeah, great question. So um, I, I used to work for President Trump, and he was one of the big leaders in price transparency. We pushed through some new requirements on hospitals and on health plans to disclose their formally secret negotiated rates that they have between each other, between hospitals and, and insurers, and even cash prices and Medicare prices. Compliance with those regs are abysmal. Um, right now, I think it's probably about a third of hospitals are complying. Um, it varies by state and by health system, but I will say that it's improving. I mean, when, when the reg was first effective, there was almost zero compliance for the first year or two. So we're, we're going into year three. I think it's better. The health plans, um, they're also required to publish this information because, of course, a lot of care is, is received in outpatient settings outside the hospital. And so we want to get those prices, too. So that's why we have the health plan regulation. The plans are not complying very well, or if they do comply, it's um, it's in sort of inscrutable uh, user files that that normal people can't read. They're they're um, in computer code, yeah. so it's it's by design. They're trying to hide and obfuscate. It, you know, once these prices were would be broken open, you might have a competitive market in healthcare, and that's what we're hoping for over time with these new requirements. Congress has piled on as well. Congress enshrined some of these rules into law. So um, I think hospitals hoped that when President Trump left office that they would just, you know, pressure Congress to get them out of this and or pressure President Biden to get them out of this. But instead, everyone has really just doubled down. So that's great. Um, that's great news for consumers, but it's going to take some time for full compliance. So, you know, I was shocked, uh, Katie, when I saw that 92 percent of adult Americans are supposed to be covered by insurance. Um, yet we still have a third of them saddled with debt. Um why isn't insurance covering most of their, their medical debt? How does that work? And, and uh, you know, is that a good number? I think 92% seems, seems pretty strong. Why such deep debt? And what's, where's, where's, the, where's the deficit? Is it only part of the employer, the, the insurance company, it's the hospitals? And what, why so much debt for the, the 92% that actually have insurance? Yeah, you're, you're right to be sort of uh, bewildered by this. Certainly, insurance is supposed to be there to protect us from catastrophic financial ruin. Um, that's precisely why we all have it um, for the people who do have it. But, you know, as my father used to remind me as I was growing up, money does not grow on trees right. and someone has to pay those bills. And what's usually happening is employers are um, bearing the majority of those bills, half the country is in, um, is insured by their employer and or by the employer of a family member. And those employers, you know, don't have a, a money tree. <laughs> they don't have money fairies. And so when prices go up, as they have been um, driven, like I said, by hospital price gouging, um, what ends up happening is the employers ha have to cost shift. You know, this is this is usually the second or third largest expense they have on their books after payroll. And they have zero control over it. They have zero ability to manage that cost, or at least most of them think that's the case. And, and in most cases, that's true. If you hire an insurance company like Blue Cross or Aetna or um, Humana or United, like those companies are 
not helping. They're part of the problem. And so, you, you know, so then you go to an insurance broker to try to find you a different plan. But the insurance brokers are bought off by those insurance companies. They're the sales force for the insurance companies and, and that's who pays them. So you think you're getting independent advice to help you pick the best plan for your company, but instead you're getting conflicted advice and self-interested advice. So the entire system's broken. And so what do employers do? You know, they can't afford a 25% increase in their, you know, second biggest line item on their budget. So they have to cost shift to their employees. They have to raise deductibles. They have to reduce the amount they're contributing to premiums so that the employers, the employees have to have to pay more. Um, They have to increase co-insurance and and other cost sharing. So everybody's really taking it on the chin. Um, I think most employers are trying to do the best they can. Um, And and this isn't really their fault. Although I will say that that they are the solution because there are some employers that are doing innovative things in the insurance market. They're firing their carrier. They're firing Blue Cross and Aetna. They're firing their big pharmacy pharmacy benefit manager. And they're they're running an independent employer-owned plan. And that can be a huge improvement. But for most people, you know, it's not helping yet. It's not enough. You head up the Alliance of Healthcare Sharing Ministries. How does that differ from healthcare, healthcare insurance? Yes, great question. Um, healthcare sharing ministries are communities of religious people um, that come together to bear one another's burdens, like in the, the book of Acts. And um, so what that means, it's not insurance, like you said, um, but really it's sort of, think of it like a, a homeschool co-op for healthcare. So everybody gets together and, you know, you go to the doctor, you get a bill from that doctor, you upload that bill to the ministry's portal. The ministry assigns other members to, to help you cover that bill. And they, they send a check to you or they send a check to the ministry and the ministry pays the doctor or you pay the doctor. And so um, that's how it works. There's no big cash reserves. There's no contract like, a, like an insurance company. Um, and it's really uh, based on the goodwill and the, the, you know, we're morally obligated to one another, but we're not legally obligated to one another. I love it. Well, let me do this. We'll come back. If you want to join the conversation, you can dial in right now. I only have my guest, Katie Talento, for a few more minutes, but the number is 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. If you're drowning in medical debt, uh, then you might want to turn up the radio, taking a look at um, how big it's getting what the possible solutions are. We can even explore healthcare sharing ministries as a viable alternative and more. Stay with me. Our conversation will continue right after this. Your news, the Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. Your news now. Hey, today we'd like to thank Santi, who's listening in Maine, for donating his 1983 Jaguar XJ6. You can join thousands of other listeners in donating old vehicles, trucks, boats, and RVs by visiting relevantradio.com slash car. That's relevantradio.com slash car. The Chaplet of Divine Mercy, live, coming up. You're listening to The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. Hey, here, just trying to put my finger on the pulse of what's happening in the country. A tidal wave right now of medical debt is sweeping across the nation. And it's a crisis, believe it or not, that doesn't care if you're insured or uninsured. It's a crisis that could very well affect the 2024 elections. I know it could certainly shape your future. Uh, This medical debt is just crushing to so many different people. If you're faced with a life-threatening illness, uh, treatment is available, but the cost can be astronomical. And I'm joined today by Katie Talenta. She's an expert in the field. And 
she is a, um, she's really, I, I would say she's a voice for those drowning in medical bills. To put it bluntly, she says, it's not like people are making free choices to enter into medical debt. They have no ability to say, oh, never mind. I can put off chemo until we get our tax refund next year. Now, it's not that case. When you're sick, when you need treatment, you need treatment. When you need that heart surgery, you need that heart surgery. And the numbers are staggering right now. Um, and they're only getting bigger. Uh, 63% of Americans are sacrificing essential food uh, to pay off medical debts. They're not getting prescriptions. So they're delaying medical treatment. Katie, it's great to have you with us. I want to go ahead and jump into the phones, grab a few calls for you. But before I do that, just very quickly, are there medical, are, are there other alternatives? I know most people look for their traditional Blue Cross Blue Shield or whatever it is that they're they currently have. That's been, you know, a traditional model for a long time. Doesn't seem to be working in terms of the big picture here of debt is this high. Um, what are the alternatives? Yeah, thanks, Drew. So, I mean, what you you mentioned one of the key alternatives, which is healthcare sharing ministries. They can be a lot more affordable for people, sometimes as much as half the cost of health insurance. And you get so much more. You get a community of people who will pray with you, who will send you notes. Um, who you can call and get prayer. You can call the ministry and get a team of people to pray with you. You know, as we're going through probably the worst thing that's ever happened to us, we're at our most vulnerable when we're dealing with these life and death issues. The last thing you want is to have some cold insurance bureaucracy at your bedside. You know, that that's just not what you need. So I think that healthcare sharing ministries offer something really precious. There are Catholic um, healthcare sharing ministries as well. And you know, I'd encourage your listeners to check them out. Well, let's go to Julie. She's in New Mexico. I think she's part of one of those ministries. And then Roderick, who is a physician, I want to hear from you too. Julie, you're up first, though. Good afternoon. Oh, thank you for so much for taking my call. Um, I got stuck in the COVID situation and retiring, and we did not know what to do about finding medical insurance. My husband was a member of the Sound Union, and we had great insurance. Yeah. We found Sherry Ministries, and let me tell you, it is a godsend as a retiree. Oh, wow. It's half the price. It's worth everything, the kindness. I don't have any problems with my bills. You know, I, I would like, you know, after a huge surgery, I owe a couple grand but wow. nothing compared to what the other stuff. I would recommend it. My husband and I researched this forever, trying to find a good policy. And I really highly remember, and my present doctors, they all take sharing ministries. So I'm plugging y'all. So I'm just telling right. you, it's just by accident that you said, thank you so hey, much. Julia, thanks. You couldn't ask for a better endorsement there, Katie. That's fantastic. Julia. Yeah, the check's in the mail. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Roderick is a physician. And he wants to join the conversation. I think he's got a perspective on why the debt is so high. Roderick, good afternoon. Yeah, hi. I, I can tell you uh, from my own personal experience that you never know one from one minute to the next what any ins particular insurance company is going to pay or even if they will pay for one service. So as a physician, when you send in your bill, you're going to bill high because you never know. Uh, you, you, you'll never know uh, if... Um, what you get paid beforehand and so you wind up uh, taking a beating or or absolutely not getting paid for three or four services that you provided and you do get paid for um a couple uh sometimes a smidgen for just the other two say for instance out of eight that you submit for and it's a constant uh, mind so you say game that, that you have to play. Roderick, you say you, the physicians bill high because they don't get paid on on every 
every procedure exactly. or encounter that they submit for. Uh, Katie, can you address that? Uh, it doesn't seem fair. I would think that there's some sort of protocol of, of procedures that you get paid X amount of dollars on. But um, are physicians getting shorted on this as well? Yeah, I mean, I think you're seeing increasing burnout among physicians. <clears throat> this is not what they signed up for, this disgusting, broken, exploit exploitative system. Um, and, you know, when I talk about price gouging, I'm not generally talking about physicians. There are a few specialists, out, uh, specialties out there that, that tend to gouge um, because they're increasingly owned by private equity. But for the most part, most physicians are not the gougers. You know, an office visit is not... <laughs> is not the driver of cost increases in healthcare. It's the hospitals um, and their procedures and their facility charges. So more and more physicians are starting to just yep. wash their hands of insurance and enter into private pay organizations or a direct primary care kind of practice or um, bundled rates only practices. Um, but you know, the hospitals know exactly what they're gonna get paid. They negotiate those contracts. It's the docs that don't, they're really suffering here too. Well, I, I noticed with dentists now, a lot of them, are basically making their patients pay up front and then they'll help them submit with the insurance. But it's up to you, the patient, to deal with the insurance company now. So they get their full payment and the burden is now on the uh, on the individual. Um, I, I only have a, a few more moments here. Um, love to, of course, you know, drive people to a site where they can get more information as well. And the other thing I'm thinking about here, Tim, we'll try to sneak another caller to in. Europe and other nations. Um, what can be learned from those nations, Canada, et cetera? I know a lot of people from other nations come to us for our medical care, but medical care in a lot of those nations is a lot less uh, expensive and far more affordable. Is there, is there a bridge between the two? Yeah, I think what other countries do, I mean, we are one of the only countries, if not the only country that maintains a private healthcare system. Most of the other countries have, have had the government take over the system in varying, uh, in varying ways. However, what I would say is, the other countries, they do a lot better job, or some of the other countries do a lot better job than, than we do in America at primary care and prevention. Yep. They prioritize primary care and prevention much more. It's when you get into specialty care, when you need a surgery, when you need, that's, that's where people come to the United States because we don't have as long wait times yeah. and we have access uh, to higher quality. Sure. But, you know, most of us want to stay healthy. Like you started this conversation out with, like, that's the best thing. Yeah. So um, we really, we really recommend primary care and, yeah. and high value primary care. Health is wealth. Juliana is listening in Cincinnati, Ohio. Hi, Juliana. Good afternoon. Hi, how are you? <laughs> We're well. Thanks. Thanks for calling. Go right ahead. Oh, so I was just listening in and I totally agree. I've, um, I'm 34 and I have two small kids and you know, the medical bills after I had children really racked up. Wow. Um, and then you always get these like miscellaneous, um, am ambiguous hospital bills that come in or the phys separate physician bill or um, the, you know, imaging bill because that, you know, is separate. Um, so you just, I feel like you end up getting like surprise bills over the next year, which I thought the government was supposed to kind of um, protect us against. Um, so it's just been, it's been a, a minute with um, kind of getting finances under, under control as far as medical debt goes. All right. I think, Juliana, thank you. I, I'm assuming you, are you still struggling with your debt? Um, yes, right. unfortunately. Well, let's say a prayer for the chapel. It's coming up in about three minutes, but let me let Katie respond to you. And, and what some final thoughts and final advice for, you know, women like Juliana and, and others who find themselves in similar situations. Yeah, I think that um, 
Juliana has a, a great point that government was supposed to be taking care of these surprise medical bills, right, and prohibiting them. But what they really did was they only prohibited them in certain situations like emergency rooms. Um, what they did do, however, is any patient can ask for a good faith estimate from a provider before they go in. So if you're having a baby, you should definitely, you have time to get a good faith estimate out of that doctor. And that, that facility needs to give you all the specialists that are going to be associated with the imaging, the labs, the surgeon, the delivery room fees, the facility fee, all of it. And you should be able to get that out of them. They're required by law to provide it to you. All right. Well, Katie, thank you for being with us. If people want to check you out, the best way to connect is how? Yeah, they can reach us at ahcsm.org, and I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn at Katie Talento. All right, at Katie Talento, and that's T-A-L-E-N-T-O. Their website, Alliance for Healthcare Sharing Ministries, Healthcare Sharing Ministries is ahcsm.org. You can check them out. Katie, thanks. Appreciate your time. Grateful My pleasure, Drew. Thanks. You got it. The uh, Chapel of Divine Mercy is straight ahead. If you want to join me, here's your direct line in. I know lines fill up quickly. It's 888 888- 914-9149. You can always hit Maggie on our X account. Send her a post at Drew Mariani Show. Join us on Facebook and on YouTube. We'll pray when I return. <laughs> 